0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening for whenever you are listening, and welcome to the third episode of Food for Thought, the podcast, a production by study association Asset Tilburg, for all those interested. Via this series, you will be able to gain relevant, inspiring insights from the business world right from your home or on the go. During Food for Thought sessions, well-known and inspiring people, ranging from politicians, the economists, and business executives will be interviewed on their personal experiences, the company they might be working for, and the experiences they have had. My name is Jules Schuurmans, a student at Tilburg University.
1: And I am Melissa van Wingerde, also a student at Tilburg University, and together we will be hosting the third edition of Food for Thought, the podcast. Today's guest also studied at Tilburg University and obtained his Master's of Law in 1985, Three years later, he worked at Randstad, a global leader in the HR service industry that is active in 38 markets and employs over 500,000 people every day. He has worked at Randstad ever since and was promoted to CEO in 2014. In this podcast, we will try to get a better understanding of our guest experiences, Randstad, and developments in the employment industry. But before we delve deeper into these topics, I would like to welcome our guest, Jacques van den Broek. How are you doing?
2: Thank you, Melissa.
0: Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, again, uh, welcome, Jacques. Um, before we start, I would like to inform all the listeners uh, that you're calling in online uh, due to the current COVID uh, lockdown rather than on campus. Uh, how long has it been since you, were, uh, since you visited Tilburg University?
2: Um, no, not that long, probably uh, two years ago. I'm, I'm still involved. Uh, I, I was invited to do a lecture which was impressive, huh, given that I was a mediocre student. But uh, unfortunately, there was online. So that was probably October last year. And physically, yeah, two
0: years or something. I think two years is not as long ago uh, as we expected. So good to hear that you're <laughs> still visiting the campus once in a while. Uh, how did you experience your student life?
2: Yeah, well, I, I found out relatively quick in the studies that uh, law and a career in law was not for me. Um, I had a lot of fun uh, on the football pitch, indoor and outdoor. I was well known there, less in the, in the, well, in the, in the study room, so to say. So I had a good time, but uh, it was clear that for me, the law study was more of a general entrance into the labor market.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, so you were active at the football pitch. Did you do anything else besides your study?
2: Yes, uh, I worked uh, as a photographer. So I already uh, was living with my first girlfriend, who's now my wife for a long time, also studied at law, Mariette. And uh, we worked in a photographer's shop every weekend and then some four weeks in the summer.
0: Good to hear. Also nice that you met your wife at Tilburg University. Uh, Do you have any fond memories of Tilburg or uh, did you both decide you want to leave as soon as your studies ended?
2: No, not really. Actually, I, I come from Breda, so that was around the corner. So yeah. I lived in Tilburg, spent a lot of time there, but uh, no, we, we, uh, we lived close to the, uh, in the Westerpark, Park, relatively close to campus. And uh, no, I have fond memories of uh, Tilburg and yeah, reputably not the most beautiful city in, uh, in the Netherlands. But yeah, then we moved to, uh, to Rotterdam, which, you know, now is beautiful, but in those days was also not the most beautiful city. So we know how this works.
0: Uh, and what is your fondest memory of your student life?
2: um yeah well probably still uh playing sports um we went to international tournaments uh, so we went to uh, belgium uh, germany Uh, yeah that was fun we were also politically active so uh, this is a long time ago but uh, the netherlands the dutch team was going to uruguay to a tournament and we opposed that so we walked off the pitch but All the football was, uh, because of bad weather, was cancelled. We were the only team. So we were the front page of uh, the Telegraaf.
0: You just mentioned that you played soccer internationally. Uh, Were you a very good soccer player? I played at
2: the highest level until I was 16, 17. But then I decided that uh, that was not for me. And my parents didn't like it. So they rather had me do an academic study. And that's tough to combine.
0: I have a final question about your student life before we make the switch to uh, talking about your career in Ronstadt. Uh, Is there anything that you learned from your student life that you are still uh, using today?
2: Yeah, um, certainly the analytical skills, both uh, in the written form, but also in the verbal form, working in teams, working in groups, although there was far less nowadays. I think uh, uh, education has improved a lot. I wanted to do an internship uh, in in, in a company and and they looked at me like, Mr. van der Broek, we're a scientific institution. We don't do private life. (laughs) So that has improved a lot.
1: So you're already mentioning an internship. Um, I can imagine that it was also tough for you to decide where to work uh, after your studies. How did you orientate? What uh, factors were most important for you uh, when you decided where to work?
2: Well, first of all, uh Ed, we mentioned it earlier, the, the job next to the studies. I noticed that I was good at working with a, with a lot of different people from different backgrounds, clients in the store. It was actually in a neighborhood, underprivileged, well, not a rich neighborhood. So, but I like that. Um, playing soccer, of course, you, you play in all sorts of villages. And then, well, in these student teams, you organize things yourself. So I was the coach and the captain of the team, uh, organizing tournaments. So working with with a lot of people, um, organizing stuff. And and I knew I was commercial. I come from a commercial family. I knew I could sell stuff, uh, which all had nothing to do with the law studies. (laughs) But, um, so that was important. Then after um, the studies, I still went into military service. And I did officers training and uh, I was appointed Lieutenant over the bomb squad. And those were 40 for all, um, uh, well, military personnel, all older than me and all professional military personnel from all walks of life again. So I could lead. I knew that from, from again, the soccer pitch. Uh, um, and I could, again, work with many people from all walks of life. But then I did a, I, I did a traineeship before joining Randstad, a traineeship is great. We also have it at Randstad. I can uh, I can recommend that because then you you get to know different businesses.
1: Okay, very impressive to hear. Then you also mentioned that you didn't uh, really go to Randstad at first. Um, why did you uh, decide to go to Randstad? Uh, not in the first place, but then after your traineeship.
2: But many people do. Uh, it's called recommendation. So I knew someone who said to me, you know. You, you would fit very well with Ransat. She was a consultant and uh, she was right. So I uh, I went there, uh, liked it immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never looked back.
1: Okay. Yeah, as mentioned in the introduction, you also uh, started there early on. And right now you're still working there. So that makes approximately 33 years of uh, employment there, I guess. Yeah. True. Okay. That's impressive.
2: I do, by the way, have a temporary contract. I do a lot of talks about flexible work and blah, blah, blah. And people say, that's easy for you because, eh? no, no, no. I got four-year contracts. I mean, my second four-year contract. So okay. if I mess up, I'm out.
1: Oh, very interesting to hear. And in that time, did you also ever like doubt Ransad or think about leaving it?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, well, you might have read our company is founded by Fritz Goldschmading. Uh, he's still alive, Fritz is 87, uh, but he stepped down from the company in 1998. I was 10 years with the company, young and eager, just below the board level. Um, but then under his successor, the company started to wobble a bit. Uh, and then yeah, I saw how important it is to have stable leadership, stable strategy, yeah, and I, I I felt like, man, well, you know, 10 years has been a good run. Maybe I should leave. Um, but then, yeah, then I didn't. Basically, in our business, you know, all sorts of companies, you get to know all sorts of companies. So you're very critical on other companies. And then I decided just to stick it out a bit. New leadership, uh, which was a colleague of mine. Then I joined the board and then the rest is history. But yeah, that was a tough time for the company also, by the way.
1: And how did you manage to turn it around for the better?
2: Um, Well, we had a hard look at what made us good as a company. In those days, we were in 10 countries, but we're not very successful outside of the Netherlands. So we, in a way, reinvented what made us good in the Netherlands and made it applicable to other countries. So I spent a lot of time in France, for example, to tweak the way of working of Randstad in the Netherlands to France. And we rolled out that way of working towards all the markets. Yeah. And we had a good run since.
1: Since we're already talking about Randstad, let's uh, continue talking about its business model. Um, How does Randstad work? How does it bring uh, supply and demand in the labor market together?
2: Um, Depending a bit, we have different business lines. but, But the basic model, so staffing, is a 360 model. That means that our consultants are paired in tools. We call them units and they have a database of uh, companies, prospects, clients, and a database of candidates. So you go out, you try to see if there's demand in the labor market, then uh, you find candidates and you make the match. That has been the same basically since 1960, but a lot of technology has come into it. What is attractive for you know the students um, uh, calling in or logging in is that you are immediately responsible So you don't grow into the business as of day one. You run your own little shop with two, three million of revenue uh, with 100 to 150 people at work. So that's what appealed to me also from day one. If you're doing well, your business is doing well. If you're not doing well, you see the results immediately. And we do that basically for high level, mid level, low level. Then we have around 2,000 locations where we are on site at the client So we organize the whole workforce on-site in factories, warehouses. Um, I actually started that myself in Breda, in the Mentos factory a long time ago. I'm very proud that we today have more than 2,000 locations where we do this throughout the world. So that's how we work. Um, 90% of the people we put to work are temps. So we build them for every hour work towards the client. And 10% is direct fixed jobs. So you mentioned five hundred thousand people. Fortunately, there was it's a little bit more. Um, it's around six hundred thousand every week, but we provide two and a half million people with a job throughout the year because of course, six hundred thousand on average, that temp. so they change, they go in, they go out, so you can take it times three. So that's an impact. two and a half million people.
1: Yeah, definitely, uh, that's definitely a a number.
0: Uh, at the beginning of your explanation, you mentioned that Randstad's uh, business model has ex- actually stayed the same since the 1960s. But how do you stay relevant um, in the today's market? Uh, that
2: was the biggest question uh, when I became the CEO. To I think the job of a CEO is to make sure that a company has, in our case, another 60 years to live. So uh, we created an innovation fund where we looked at all sorts of HR startups that could be, you know, dangerous to us or that could be a nice uh, and a nice addition to our service portfolio. So we analyzed 3000 HR startups, um, from all sorts of our process. So how they contact clients, how we assess and test video interview candidates? Um, we acquired or invested in 20 acquire two companies. Yeah. And that, that taught us a lot on how to use technology. So. As I said, the core of what we do is still the same, but how it's brought to life and how it's supported by technology, huge different. Um, And we also, of course, work with big tech a lot. So we work with Google, we work with Amazon to see where we can use them, but also where they are threatening for us. So what we now try to do, or what we're busy doing is use technology in such a way that it supports the human moment. There's always a human moment for a candidate to say, okay, do I fit that job, that company? And those are soft values. So uh, Melissa, you asked me, how did you get to Randstad? Well, someone said you might fit there. And that is for everybody. Work is important. So I'm not talking a two hours a week job, but I'm talking your next job. You want to be sure that that fits your personality. And for the clients, they also want to know if the person we find fits the company. But then again, there's a lot of technology. Just to give you an example, in our American business, that's the biggest business we're having in Ransom, around a million uh, interviews have been conducted through chatbots, artificial intelligence, in our database. So that's the first conversation because everybody is, let's have COVID we're going to talk about later, but everybody is basically in a job going forward and they need to be interested in, you know, maybe you might change. And we do that through technology. Then the consultant finds out that, hey, there's a candidate in my calendar who's had a conversation with my tech buddy and they're interested in a conversation with me. So that is nowadays uh, how we organize our contacts with our candidates. We have a 200 million people, 200 million, in our database globally.
1: Okay, so you just mentioned that um, you're doing more and more with technology. Is there still like a physical moment that is really necessary in that process?
2: Yeah, it is. Um, if you look at sectors that have been disintermediated, eh? banks recently, travel agencies. Eh? Recently, you, you read about the bankruptcy. Uh, close to 300 branches in the Netherlands closed. So the human moment in retail banking, apparently, for the customer, is not so relevant. And then, yeah, over time, you see these branches being closed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Also, in the services that have been disintermediated, if something goes wrong, it's not such a big deal. Let's say you book an apartment on Airbnb, look nice on the pictures, is in a crummy neighborhood, very noisy. Wow, you have the weekend wasn't great, but life goes on. You order the wrong shoes, color's not great, doesn't fit, you send them back. So that can all be automated. A job is different. If you are in the wrong job, uh, and you've not you know, talked to anybody about that, and it might be online, it eh? doesn't need to be physical. You're in the wrong job, you need to get out. It's on your resume, you need to explain why you switched jobs again, blah, 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 blah. That's important for people. And around the job, it's all around soft values, not your diploma. So again, a tip to everybody listening, as an employer, we don't really care about your education. We care about your personality.
0: Yeah. And you just mentioned switching jobs is important. Uh, what do you think of the impact flexible workers have on the labor market?
2: Yeah, so it it depends a bit in, in, the, in the geography you're in. But in most Western Europe, uh, there is a big divide. We think a too big divide between fixed work and flexible work. The labor market is increasingly mismatched. So there are a lot of people who are going to be short of people, by the way. There are a lot of people in jobs that they won't be able to finish throughout their lifetime. White-collar jobs will be automated. So they need to switch to other jobs. But that's a scary thing. And a lot of that happens through us. Flexible work, try this, try that. So for example, stewardesses currently around Schiphol, KLM, they won't be back in the same number they were before COVID. That is COVID, but it's also the shift in how much will people be flying, certainly business. So they're now trying through us new jobs. Also last week, uh, it was in the newspaper that the Dutch army is gonna lend uh, people from other companies just to try how it is to work in the army. They do that through us. So we are the, the stepping stone for young people, unemployed people, people
0: that wanna shift sectors towards a new career. So you also mentioned that you have a flexible contract yourself. Is that then to set an example for other people?
2: Um, not really, because if I would have a fixed contract and I wouldn't perform, I would be out anyway, because in my contract, severance is already uh, um, you know, pre-qualified. But it is uh, the, the Dutch corporate governance code. So um, shareholders get to vote every four years if board members and the CEO get to stay. Do you want to stay another four years after this? I'm, I'm still enjoying myself immensely. But again, that's not up to me. So I'm up for vote next year. So
0: let's see. Uh, we talked about flexible workers, uh, the question before. And during the elections a while back, Bukstra mentioned that his party supports bringing back the unemployment benefits to one year instead of two. This created quite some media attention and a lot of political noise. What did you think of that whole situation?
2: Well, b- the biggest problem with this, certainly with press is that the message is framed because this is not what hookstar said it is too long Uh, getting unemployed is a little bit like um, sports or or running Uh, if you stop doing that you lose your stamina it's tough to get back we see that of course with a lot of people Uh, if you are two to three weeks four weeks unemployed you lose a bit of discipline you lose self-confidence so again it's like riding a horse you need to get back on immediately so what hookstar was advocating is what we have in other markets also a small period short period in which we're gonna work actively with you to get you back on the horse and that's good because um if if you're not into a new job within the first few months and you are getting unemployed longer it's tougher and tougher and tougher to get back
0: yeah uh From your story, I think I can understand you're pro going to one year instead of two. Uh, But do you also see some disadvantages in doing so? So currently, we have a system whereby you lose your job.
2: Now what? Then you go to a public institution, uh, Arbeitsbureau, UAV, but they're not prepared for you coming. Basically, they don't know who you are. uh, And they don't have a direct link to the outside world. What we are advocating is that everybody's prepared. So what we are saying is make a call a data profile of every working person in the country. If you then, you know, you don't lose your job in that philosophy, by the way, because we're going to be short of people. So everybody can basically work. We know that the job is ending. So your data is then known, not just by a public organization, but we're advocating having a public private partnership a sort of a very active temping agency, we know you're coming. So we say, Jules, you've been in this job. We saw that job was ending, right? We signaled this three months ago. We got your data profile here. We got two proposals for you. This needs to happen in six months. We'll give you a training. You'll keep your salary. You need to make a choice. You either go into healthcare, you go into education, you go into services. These are your choices. Think about it for a week. You can also try it, huh eh? For, as I said, for temporary, it's a short period. But then you need to go. So we're advocating a total system change where we don't need long unemployment benefits anymore because everybody's going to be working or preparing for the next job.
1: Do you think that everyone is willing to retrain in that sense? Because you're saying that there are a lot of jobs, but then people need to be able to take that step.
2: Well, it starts with... You are responsible for uh, being at work throughout your life, taking care of your family, of yourself. That is your responsibility. It's not the responsibility of your employer. It's not the responsibility of the government. So it starts with you. That's the first thing you need to be aware of. Um, People are not automatically willing to change to another sector. That is true. People ask themselves three questions. The first one is, Why do I need to to retrain? Well, we need to make it clear to you that this job is ending through automation, through whatever. Second one is, okay, but where do I need to go? Based on your profile, we can then work with you. Where do you want to go? Third question is, oh, okay, who's going to help me with that? And then you need a very one-on-one labor intensive cooperation to get you into a new job. And... We we recently in the Netherlands uh, um, approached 14,000 people, which is temporary COVID support. And we said, you know, you work in the Schiphol area. That's not going to come back quickly. We got a lot of work in other sectors. And we offered these people free training to get into a different sector. Less than a thousand said, okay, that's a good idea. And the rest said, let's wait. That's not good. You shouldn't wait. Waiting is not good in preparing for your future. By the way, because nothing is going to come to you if you wait.
0: Yeah. So people sit there, really become proactive in their career and their opportunities.
2: Yeah. And we know it's painful. Eh? We we've done outplacement for twenty five years, and that's traumatic. You lose your job. It's unexpected. You're not prepared. But seventy to eighty percent says afterwards, I should have done this years ago, because I've quite a lot of people who are not so happy in jobs, but they still, you know, sit it out. Sounds sad, is a relatively, in a lot of cases, uh, reality.
0: Yeah, you just quickly mentioned uh, COVID yourself already uh, and the effects of that. Um, And the event of flexible work is an event, is a trend that uh, gradually evolved, but COVID is quite um, in this moment. Which effect has COVID had on the labor market and on OneStat itself?
2: Let's start first with the outlook for the labor market before COVID. So automation, uh, artificial intelligence, of course, has effects on jobs. But it's not like a lot of jobs are going to disappear. One in seven jobs are going to disappear. And these are not the jobs at the bottom end of the labor market. These are the white collar jobs, sometimes even at relatively high level, which have a lot of repetitive administrative processes. A lot like in controlling, uh, accountancy, uh, that sort of thing. And also in management, well, we manage bank uh, tellers, that sort of thing, right? Those kind of jobs. So those were at peril. What happened in COVID was the people that lost their jobs were not these people, because they could work from home, but the people at the lower end of the labor market. It doesn't show in Europe because of the government support. Well, we had 15 1.5 million 1, 5 million unemployed within four weeks in the U.S. In restaurants, uh, in retail, small shops, that sort of thing. But the moment we are vaccinated, those jobs will be back. And then we're back to pre-COVID. If you are now in a white-collar job, you shouldn't wait. If you are early 40s, working in an, an insurance company, government, at a bank, you can't be too sure that you're going to do that for the rest of your uh, career. So, you know, get out there and, and, and create a future for yourself. Be prepared for something else. Which role do we play? Uh, we, last year, trained more than 300,000 people. Uh, in the Netherlands, 30,000. Uh, and we see more and more of that happening. So we are accommodating people to prepare themselves for a different future. And that doesn't need to happen. But then at least, you know, if this job ends, I can do something else and I'm prepared. So I'm still working in an insurance company, but I'm prepared to become a teacher. I'm prepared to work in healthcare. I'm working on a techno on a technology training to go to a technology company. I'm going to work in sales. And I'm prepared to do that. That's not the case currently.
1: Yeah, interesting to hear. Uh, besides COVID, Then we also have another uh, huge labor force uh, movement right now, or more kind of a debate itself, diversity and inclusion. Um, You're saying in itself, everyone has opportunity to have such jobs, uh, but at the same time, people say that they are not really able to get certain jobs because they're a woman, because they're older or because they have a certain cultural background. Could you tell us uh, what Randstad's policy is regarding, for example, diversity with respect to gender?
2: Sure. Uh, we are the uh, only, and We're very proud of the fact that we are the only company worldwide in our sector that now for five years uh, has a place in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. That means that all your policies uh, need to adhere to the standards of Dow Jones. And sustainability, well, of course, we're a service company. So we're not Shell, we're not KLM. So we're less on that sort of thing. But we're very heavy on inclusive workforces, decent work for all. Women in the workplace, uh, promoting people with a cultural, uh, uh, a different cultural background, and that is where we play a huge role. Even when I was a branch manager a long time ago in Rotterdam, I had clients that really said, you know, I want a real Dutch boy. Well, you know what they meant, right? And I sent them a real Dutch boy called Mohammed because he was a really good worker. So you know, we we play that role. Um, it's also in ourselves, in our own company. Uh, as management, we, we, we have part of our long-term bonus is on inclusive targets. I'm very proud of the fact that last year we had uh, 51% of uh, female management. Uh, so that's a good step, uh, but that takes time. But at the same time, you also need to support women uh, to, to take that extra step because a lot of women still in the Netherlands In the early 30s, they bear the brunt of the family. I've had many female colleagues that came to me like, yeah, Shaq, uh, I need to take a bit of a step back. We're getting kids. So I said, so what about your guy? (laughs) So do it together, right? Uh, The only thing, of course, you physically cannot do as as a guy is get the the kids, but afterwards, it's 50-50. That's still tough. So culturally in the Netherlands, that's uh, not really, we're not there yet. Um, What I also hear a lot is that we do see uh, young female professionals end of their 20s that take a day for themselves in the week, which is not a Saturday and not a Sunday. Well, you shouldn't do that because if you want to make a career, if you want to stack up on that letter, if you find it important, by the way, yeah? Um, yeah. Then again, it's like sports. You need to put in the same amount of training, but you need to expect from an employer that they facilitate you. So for example, Lieke Schepers. Lieke is uh, managing Yacht, uh, the biggest professionals company in the Netherlands, uh, part of Ronstar. Lieke has three kids. Uh, her husband is a specialist, a medical specialist. And we work with Lika uh, throughout, uh, you know, combining a family and having a career which she wanted. So there's um, something in it for all of us to, to, to make this happen.
1: Okay, so you're pretty much saying that uh, for a part it's on the women themselves because they choose to work less and to put in less effort. Uh, do you also recognize that there would be a problem, uh, for example, in meetings that men are more keen on, uh, for example, cutting off women because it's easier or uh, in that sense that there's also sort of a bias in that sense towards women and selecting them?
2: Um, Yeah, but a lot of unconscious bias. If it was conscious bias, that's easier to treat. Uh, Let me get my own uh, example. So in the first seven, eight years in the board, we had a board of four people, all Dutch, uh, middle-aged men and we were living very close together. And in a way, it's easy to have such a team. You know, you are always of the same opinion and blah, 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 blah. But in a way, you're not set up to manage a company like ours, eh? given the nationalities, uh, the countries, uh, the majority in our company is women, is female. Um, So now my team is uh, four nationalities, uh, uh, two women, four guys, so still want to go. And they live across the globe. For me as a leader, that's actually tougher to manage in a way, because there's more opinions, you need to organize it, there's time zones, blah, blah, blah. But we're way better suited to manage this company. Meaning diverse teams, it's an effort. You need to really consciously manage that and create it. But it makes for a better company at the end of the day.
1: Would you say that it's difficult to create this in a sense, because you're like one of the only companies that... um has had this movement and 51% of female in the senior management.
2: Well, it's it it's it's part of managing a company of creating a company. So that's always hard work. Um, my wife uh, Mariette Türkenburg, uh, she's now uh, the the chairperson of Talent naar de top and they help companies to create a pipeline because yeah, you cannot just go out and say, I want more women. That is a deliberate effort that takes, you know, uh, you need to have everybody ideally 50-50 from the start. Uh, and then you need to manage that. So I get an example. Last year, I I got a, a, a list of participants for a certain training. And I looked at that list and it was 60% men. So I sent the list back. And people said to me, yeah, but it's already been communicated to these people and blah, blah, blah. I said, I don't care. I want a list which is at least 50-50 female. Also, when I was recruiting for a new board member uh, two years ago, I said to the hand I want women. Yeah, but we got some very good men. I said, well, come again. I want women. How difficult the question is that? Oh, but that's tough to find. Hey, that's why we pay you the big bucks, right? So you need to push back. You constantly need to push back. But you also need to, as I said earlier, as management, actively adopt talented women. Because for women to make careers, you need to change the men, not the women. Also, but if they're ambitious, you need to change the men. Because when a woman in the Netherlands wants to make a career, she needs to explain it to her husband, sometimes to her own mother, and also to all the girlfriends. Because all the girlfriends who then, oh, my God, you're at work again. You're no fun. There's a lot of this subtle social pressure. And that doesn't help.
1: In that sense, do you also have tips for women to get there, to get out there and how to be themselves and be better in that sense?
2: Tips. Yeah, definitely. Let Let me give a very controversial one. If you are in a relationship and the relationship feels good, then uh, you should discuss what you think your future will look like. And if the man is then not very sure on what you want to do, then hmm, you might want to look elsewhere. So as I said, Mariette and I have always shared career wishes, 50-50. Mariette even lived in New York for two years, couldn't join her. So we lived apart for two years. Everybody says, oh, the relationship is not going to survive. Whatever, right? Let alone because 90% of the time the guy makes the career and the woman joins. That's the other way around. I also have tips for career, uh, tips for men, sorry. It's very liberating if your wife is more intelligent than you are and more successful in a career. That was the case with my wife for a long time. I'm a a slow starter, so now I'm doing okay. But uh, my wife has been the breadwinner for a long time. Very liberating. And on a serious note, by the way, making a career, again, if you want it, at top sport. Uh, you need to put in the hours. And then men always say, well, that's a great job. I've never done it, but I'm sure I can do it. Women, this is a bit generic, but I see it a lot. Uh, and it's scientifically also researched. Uh, women always say, that's a great job. I'm not sure I can do it. Let's think about it. That's not the approach. In that sense, you need to be a bit more male. And men should be more female, by the way, because many men find out actually they can't do
0: it.
1: On that note, um, I've been inspired by your company itself and how you uh, implement it. But how do you take this into account when matching a person to a new employer? Do they also say, uh, find me a good woman? Or are there other criteria?
2: Yeah, what I, I always say, Every client wants a mid-30s, very successful person that really fits who they are, very successful at their best competitor. We then find them 262 62 62-year-olds who've not worked for a long time, part-timers, and they're still happy. Meaning, we find you the person that is the best for you. And that doesn't fit your profile. And that also goes for gender. And, and as I mentioned, eh, my, my Mohammed example in Rotterdam, we advise on what we see uh, is fitting. Data can play a huge role because data nowadays still algorithms, they don't play a good role in, in uh, overriding biases. So for example, if you would type in CEO, nine times out of 10, you would find a bold Uh, 50-something Dutch guy. But you want a early 40s female. So an algorithm doesn't give you that. So you need to reprogram algorithms in that sense, and we're not there yet, so that, that data helps you to find different people. So we have a lot of clients where we proactively create a more diverse workforce. But that is, again, still touch. We call that touch. You need to do that by hand and convince the client.
1: Okay, and on that note, for example, you and I also uh, study econometrics, which is predominantly male. Um, How would you create a fair selection procedure uh, when you, for example, want 50-50 male-female? How would you still have a fair selection procedure while aiming at a quota in that case?
2: Yeah, that's tough. Um, again, uh, back to this talent at the top. They work with uh, drilling companies and technical companies, and they start with a twenty eighty pipeline. Eh? You, you see it in school already, as you mentioned in econo- econometrics, for example. Um, so, so then, yeah, then to get to fifty fifty stuff, eh? because you need to have the material to work with. So then we need to go back to something else, and that is um, examples. So for many jobs even in in preschool, uh, a fireman is always a fireman, a pilot is always a man. Uh, So we have all these wrong examples. So we need to change the imagery also uh, for for women to choose differently. There's, There's no objective difference in minds that women are less exact. So it must be reasons for choosing these studies and that women are underrepresented in general in STEM jobs, eh? science, technology, engineering and mathematics, which we also need to work at. But, but that starts really early, Melissa, like four or five years old already.
0: And do you think Grandstad can play a role in that or is that more for uh, the government or...
2: Well, we do a lot at schools. Um, so we do. We have a lot of uh, uh, call it already middle education, not lower education, but middle education. We talk about the labour market and the attractiveness. Uh, we also are very active in having education already early in schooling. It's very necessary. Yeah, and then yeah, we can play a role in in in
0: promoting women as much as we can into different jobs. Thank you for elaborating on diversity with respect to gender. Um, Diversity in gender is, of course, not the only type of uh, diversity. But Melissa already quickly mentioned, uh, for example, diversity in cultural aspects. Uh, Could you elaborate also how you would tackle that problem? It is
2: partly touchy uh, because you you cannot register. Uh, You can register male, female, but you cannot register where someone's from. It's actually also irrelevant. So to have it measured like we have in quota in, in gender... It, it's it's yeah, partly illegal, by the way, to to capture that in data. What I do know is looking at my workforces is that, again, we play a huge role. So if you look at the general population that we run stuff, but not just run stuff, but the sector as a whole uh, has at work, they are younger than the average and they're way more culturally diverse. And this, again, is where FlexWork plays a huge role because we always say, give it a try. Both angles, by the way, yeah, because it's not just the employer. Uh, I mentioned you need to fit a culture. So that's what we sometimes also see. People don't feel at home, eh? uh, literally. So we need to have these more open cultures. I say uh, to many of my clients, if you look at your workforce of the future, and COVID has sped up this development, you're going to have 18 to 70 years old Uh, One third doesn't belong to you. is not on your payroll. You hire them. 20 to 30% is working from home. And you will have many nationalities. That's your workforce. And you want to have a culture. You want to have everybody feel at home. So, you know, prepare for that. Otherwise, you you will not find the right people. Because we're going to be short, as I mentioned earlier. You can't afford the luxury to have people that look like you. You need to have people that, you know, uh, work with you.
0: And you mentioned uh, that we're going to be short of workers. Do we have a solution for that as well at Randstad? Yeah, we need
2: to work more. We need to work longer. And we need to work more hours per week. So the Netherlands has 71% of people from the labor force at work. Wow, sounds okay. We're in the top 15 or something. But if you look at the hours worked, then we are between Azerbaijan and Lebanon, I think because um, I think uh, on top of my head, more than 75% of women works part-time. So the solution for shortages in healthcare and education, for example, is for women to work more. It's not attractive to work more financially in the Netherlands, because the more you work, the more taxes you pay. Strange. We have a crummy system of uh, childcare. It should be free. It should be for everybody, like in Scandinavia, uh, uh, pe- kids should be you know having lunch at school uh, having dinner at school if if you so want right um, and those are the solutions but yeah
0: we're not there yet yeah, I think that's a big role to play for the government and not only for Randstad yeah um, let's uh, go over to the questions uh, from our listeners because in all our food for thought uh, podcast sessions uh, we have a small break uh, with questions that have been sent in by Tilburg University students Uh, and the first question is, uh, what would you consider as the turning point in your career? Ha. Ah, looking at the leadership changes
2: in in the in the company, and then, um, yeah, not having the trust that the company was going uh, in the right direction, that 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 the success we had would continue into the future. Today, the company is worth around ten billion. At that turning point, at the lowest point, we were worth seven hundred million. So we were really up for grabs as a company. So for me, the turning point was that, and certainly when I moved up again, is that as leadership, you need to, you know, paint a stable picture, give people confidence, create a winning company. Otherwise, yeah, people will leave you. And, and so, so that has been a turning point. First of all, that I stayed, that's that's always tough. Um, what, what, you, what we do see, again, a tip for students, Younger people, this sounds like daddy, eh? sorry. But you need to learn and you need to learn from your mistakes and your setbacks. The The difficulty with a with labor market where everybody can find a job is that in your second year with us or with any other employer, you, you, you bump against the stuff that you're not so good at. But then you should stay because then you learn. If you then go, you, you will bump into the same stuff again 2 years later at a different employer and you're still at the same level. So, you know, for me, I have I've had those learning points of course. Um when the first consultant left me, I was running a branch, 16 consultants, doing very well. We grew, great atmosphere, blah blah blah. And then a consultant said, hmm, I'm leaving." Leaving? How can you leave? This is like the best job ever. Yeah, yeah, how true, but I want to try it somewhere elsewhere. So I ah, and I was totally bitching and he didn't understand it. And my boss then said, what well, could you have done differently? Since then, every time I'm faced with a business challenge or a personal challenge, I always go back to myself. Like, okay, what can I change? Do I need to change? Do I, did I approach it wrong? That has been a great learning for me. So stay with it. Make mistakes. Uh, be open about it. Uh, then you grow. Doesn't mean that you need to be 33 years with the same company, of course.
1: Yeah. So another person sent in the question, what is it like to cooperate with different cultures within a business that is focused on HR? Um, Different HR uh, institutions in different countries probably have different visions. So uh, how do you work with that?
2: What we did wrong, I mentioned it earlier, is that we were too much focused on bringing the Dutch way of working through the world. Uh, Fritz already went abroad in 1965, but in the first 30 years, he didn't earn any money outside of the Netherlands. I think what we've done well at Runstad is still have the way of working of Runstad, the culture, but we've made it fit to in other countries. As an example, we're not a very hierarchical company, which you might say is a bit Dutch. In Belgium, it's already way more hierarchical. The Randstad company is less hierarchical than a typical Belgian company. So we try to create this inclusiveness. We try to be open to everybody, uh, but still international. So it's slightly different everywhere. So for example, if I go to Japan, nobody speaks English. These people are doing a great job, very successful in Japan, but they're not automatically talking to the CEO. They do speak English, by the way, but they're perfectionists, so they don't want to show. So it's always through an interpreter. I then take it plane, one and a half hours to Shanghai. My Chinese colleagues come up to me, say, hi, I'm Steve. I yeah, got a Chinese and a Western name. I joined Ransa two months ago, really like it here, and I'm going to have your job. So, you know, and that's fascinating. So... It's a different way of working in Japan than it is in China, than it is in uh, New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. But it still runs up.
0: I think the, the third question is um, quite on the same topic. The question is, how do you ensure that you have the same vision in the different countries you operate in?
2: That's a great question. It always starts with, a, with, a, with a, so I, I get the question like, how many branches do you have? Well, we have roughly 4,800 branches. Are you actually sure that the branches is open in the morning? Uh, No, you have any like thing in place that you control that? No, because I'm absolutely sure that our people feel the branch as their responsibility. So not only is the branch open, the branch is open 60 hours a week if it's necessary for the clients. So this is called purpose. So, and we spend a lot of time in that, talking about it, leading by example. We improve the world. We give people jobs, we give them different jobs, we bring them from unemployment to jobs, we help companies. And that keeps everybody awake at night. And therefore, yeah, it's fascinating, but if I'm in Argentina in a branch, or if I'm in Tokyo in a branch, it's all Ronstadt. We have the same discussions, we're all focused, we like the job, we make the choices every day. I cannot make the choices people need to make in all the branches, but I give them purpose. I give them support, technology support, of course, but then, yeah, it's fascinating. It also surprised myself, by the way, to be honest, but don't share this
0: outside of this podcast. Thank you for answering the questions of our listeners. Um, Now that we're closing uh, the end of the uh, podcast, I'm wondering what you expect the future to bring for Randstad, but also for yourself. Uh, Let's start with Randstad. Uh, Where do you think Randstad will be in five years? Yeah, well,
2: we were very happy to become uh, the world market leader two years ago, Uh, 20 years ago, we were like one third of the number one in the world with 5 billion. And and, uh, two years ago, we were close to 25 billion. This is not about size, but this again is about the bigger you are, the more impact you bring. So, you know, I think in 10 years time, we can be twice what we are, but more importantly, by 2030, we want to touch 500 million people in their working life. So RunStart will then be relevant in some shape or form, not just a job, but also an education, information on the labor market, a training, whatever, for 500 million people. That is our big, hairy, audacious goal. And as long as I can participate in achieving that,
0: I'll be happy. Thanks for your explanation. Um, We also have a small question about the future of me and Melissa, we are both students at the economic faculty here in Tilburg. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for students like us?
2: Well, of course, as, uh, as you might have heard throughout the podcast, I was a very mediocre, unmotivated uh, student. I found my way. That is, you need to find your way. So you need to find, uh, try different jobs. Uh, already work next to your studies in what is relevant. So for example, Ransat Belgium in Leuven has a cooperation with the university to find relevant jobs for students. So are you happy in a startup? Are you happy at the government? Are you happy at a large corporate? You need to find that out. So by all means, at Yacht in the Netherlands, we have a traineeship where in four years you can do three jobs with a lot of training and personality building on the side. And we manage the choices. So you should offer that to yourself. I started as a trainee also. So that's, impo- that's important. Do a lot of stuff on the side. Eh? Uh, so as you, you now have a, an extra year eh, in organizing this sort of stuff. Very important. As an employer, I'm not interested in someone who lived at home with his parents and finished the studies in three and a half years because they have not developed as a person. You might have your diploma, but I don't really give a damn because you've not worked with people. But but go into society, do jobs where you meet different people. Uh, The the segregation between certain groups, higher educated, lower education, is increasing in Western society. And that's not good. Eh? My son, my oldest son in Rotterdam is now a consultant for small and medium-sized enterprises at no cost. You know, helping companies get out there, develop yourself, take as much time as you can to do your studies. I did every uh, tentame uh, three times. That's a wrong way. But, you know, do that. And don't worry about the student debt. It's an investment in yourself. And education and analysis is basically free. So enjoy the free education. Enjoy yourself. And we're going to be shorter people, right? Shorter people.
1: Okay. On that note... Um, are you thinking about uh, leaving Randstad before your retirement, or uh, do you want to keep, continue your career there?
2: I don't know. I always say I might have, might be carried out horizontally, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I still enjoy it, and 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 very basic stuff, eh? So what I really, really still enjoy is an old fashioned sales pitch. So I do a lot of sales myself. Still, I give sales training. So that, I, I still really like that. Um, I used to like going out and travel. I meet colleagues and clients all over the world. Well, I still have a long bucket list on stuff I'm going to do once I'm... I'm going to be vaccinated, by the way, Saturday morning. So hopefully uh, I can get back soon. And as long as they like me and as long as we're successful, why not?
1: Could you share your number one bucket list item uh, that you want to do sure. during your career? <laughs>
2: The first one is uh, going uh, with my oldest son to Feyenoord. Uh, we have uh, an, uh, a season ticket for a long time. So not been in the stadium for a long time. Um, wanna go to Formula One. Uh, we provide engineers and technicians to uh, Alpha Tauri in Italy, So hopefully go there in September. Uh, and then again, you know, I'm meeting my colleagues. I've got two new colleagues in the board which I've not seen in the last one and a half years. And they're both in the US, so the US is first, then go to Singapore to meet my Asian colleagues. Very successful in Argentina and Brazil the last two years, even throughout COVID we grew. So going there again, it's a long list, uh, Melissa.
1: Yeah, good to hear that you set so many goals for yourself personally, as well as professionally then. As we're nearing the end of the interview, I want to thank you, Jacques, for taking the time uh, to share your experiences with us today. I found it very interesting to learn more about your personal experiences and insights into the labor market. And I hope that the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, but before we finish this interview, there's one question left that we always ask our guests at the end of the interview. And uh, as our podcast series is called Food for Todd, you might have already guessed it. So do you have some final food for Todd you want to share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, um, maybe you should not plan anything. Uh, I never planned anything. I always made sure that I enjoyed what I did every day. Uh, And then when you enjoy something, most of the time you're pretty good at it. That gets noticed. And then if you so will make a career, surround yourself with people that know you well, uh, professionally or private that can help uh, uh, and support you and be honest and open to you so that you know, it's tough in the first few years, eh? I was in studies. I I didn't like my studies that much. I was really looking for what's next year. So I asked a lot of people where they thought I would fit. Uh, and again, it's not because of your studies. It's about you, for you to find a place where you fit. Might be your own company, right? You never know. So take your time. Never mind the student debt.
1: And after all, don't plan everything ahead. Thank you for sharing this Food for Thought with us today. Our next interview will be with Inze van Zanten, who is chief evangelist of Tony Chocolonely. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram. At assetilburg, at food for thought, this podcast was a production by Study Association at Tilburg, Tilburg School of Economics and Management and the podcast producent.